Thank you all for coming. It's a pleasure to be here once again. Been here a number of times. Always good to see. I have a crowd in Cincinnati. Let me get my glasses out. Uh, as that uh, slide uh, indicated, we're going to talk about January 6th. Uh, recent development, uh, just within the past few days, Jacob Chansley, you know who Jacob Chansley is? He's otherwise known as QAnon Shaman, who had the uh, distinction of being a very distinctive looking guy. He wore like a, a Viking helmet with horns on it. He painted his face uh, red, red, white, and blue. And as a result of that, he became the poster boy for January 6th. For no other reason, didn't, didn't start the thing, didn't do anything that. He was just uh, uh, visually striking, and that's why he became the poster boy, and that's why he got arrested. He was arrested for something known as the insurrection. Okay, insurrection is a category of the mind created by Democrats to cover up the fact that they had stolen the 2020 election. More importantly, it covered over the fact that what they were calling insurrection was in fact an entrapment scheme concocted by the FBI. Recently released videos show Chansley being escorted by two Capitol police officers through the corridor of the Capitol. Tucker Carlson, who showed the videos on a show, claimed that virtually every moment of his time inside the Capitol was caught on tape. Carlson was granted exclusive access by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to 40,000 hours of surveillance footage uh, from that day inside and outside the Capitol, which was never seen before by the public. The tapes, according to Carlson, show the Capitol Police never stopped Jacob Chansley. They helped him. They acted as his tour guides. At one point, the officers seemed walking Chansley past seven other police officers milling around outside the Senate chamber who barely give him a second look. Then they escorted him to various entrances of the chamber that appeared to be locked. Eventually, they help him open a door and he enters the chamber. The narrative created on that day by Democrats and much of the media turned Jacob Chansley into, quote, a dangerous conspiracy theorist dressed in an outlandish costume who led the violent insurrection to overthrow America's democracy. Taken as a whole, Carlson continues, the video does not support the claim that January 6th was an insurrection. Tucker Carlson was right. January 6th was not an insurrection. In legal terms, it is known as entrapment or a false flag operation. I don't know where, whether you remember this, but when I, everyone that went to January 6th uh, had Black Lives Matter and the Floyd riots in mind. And everyone was expecting Black Lives Matter to set fire to buildings and so on and so forth, including the FBI. And the FBI was smart enough to flip the narrative completely into something totally different than what everyone was suspecting. And it allowed them to do what they're really good at, which is entrapment. Okay, and today I'm going to talk uh, to a large extent uh, about Michigan, which is famous for entrapment schemes. I don't know whether you know much about Michigan, but it's famous. Uh, and the most, one of the most famous, the one that made a big impression on me was the Hootery case. How many people know about the Hootery 
Nobody. Okay. Well, okay, one guy. Uh, on March, Monday, March 29, 2010, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Detroit, Michigan, announced the arrest of, quote, seven men and one woman believed to be part of the Michigan-based Christian militia group known as the Hootery. Over the weekend, in raids in Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio, these nine alleged members of a Christian militia group, we are told, were girding for battle with the Antichrist. They were charged Monday with plotting to kill a police officer and slaughter scores of more by bombing the funeral, all in hopes of touching off an uprising against the U.S. government. U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder underscored the gravity of the situation when he announced that the FBI had just dealt, quote, a severe blow to a dangerous organization that today stands accused of conspiring to levy war against the United States. I mean, that's really serious. I mean, gosh, uh, until you look at it, um, this is, um, you, they, they, so when the report was released, they did visuals of this thing. Front page story is accompanied by a picture of the rusted trailer where Hoodery leader David Brian Stone called home. And there, leading next to a washing machine in the front yard, was a lone rifle, a 22 caliber rifle. Missing from the picture was a jug of moonshine. Daisy May and Lil Abner were nowhere to be seen in a photo whose caption should have read dog patch calls for armed insurrection. But that would have undermined the high seriousness of U.S. attorney's press conference in the sense that we all dodged a serious terrorist attack, which was palpable in Attorney General Holder's remarks. Before long, uh, by the way, that guy with that 22, his mother took it away from him. So that was the end of the insurrection until the FBI showed up. Okay, before long, then the FBI had uh, lots of serious weapons and explosives and the whole thing, okay? So before long, it became abundantly clear that the great Hoodery uprising story was prima facie preposterous. And yet one commentator I read seemed to think that there was anything wrong with claiming that a mentally deranged man whose mother has taken his gun, gun away from him could have toppled the United States government if the FBI hadn't intervened. That's what it was. And then the commentators all took their uh, cue uh, from the government. And so we had an article in Christian Science Monitor by a guy named uh, Mark Guarino. And the, the, <laughs> the headline was, Hootery, why is the Midwest a hotbed of militia activity? Well, the answer to that question is the Southern Poverty Law Center. He got his entire article from the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, Southern Poverty Law Center, in case you didn't know, also has me on its uh, uh, list, unsurprisingly. Uh, and uh, it's now shown in Indiana to anyone who becomes a state trooper. You have to watch this, uh, take the hit, the hate list. I am at the top of the hate list for Indiana, and I'm listed there in South Bend, Indiana. And I remember there was a group of people becoming, you know, state troopers. One of them looked at the list and said, wait a minute, I know that guy. He's not even a group, much less a hate group. He, he publishes a magazine, you know? 
anyway, the, 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 the Southern Poverty Law Center goes on. Uh, the guy just took it. Like, take the facts from the Southern Poverty Law Center, put it in as an article. And he's writing things like, only Texas with 57 so-called patriot groups outstrips Michigan's 47, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, a nonprofit civil rights organization in Montgomery, Alabama, that tracks hate group activity. He says this with a straight face. Is this journalism? Not only that, uh, Guarino informs us that between 2008 and 2009, the number of such groups has increased from 149 to 512. And just in case we were wondering where he got these figures, he got them from the Southern Poverty Law Center. In spite of the fact that these basis for these claims reside solely when a group is sole purpose for existence is discovery of hate groups, he goes on to conclude that the arrests point to how the Midwest in particular has become a hotbed for patriot activity. Uh, goes on to say, there are a number of regional factors that over time at various moments helped the militia movement emerge stronger in the upper Midwest. Those factors include shared anxiety among lower to middle class people as, as often a catalyst for generating conspiracy theories which have the potency to provoke people to take up arms and commit violence. Okay, regional factors. I think that's true. And I think the main regional factor that we're talking about here is Michigan. And the main region that Michigan is a regional factor is because it was the headquarters of America first during the 1930s. Henry Ford, Father Coughlin, Charles Lindbergh. Usually we don't have started with Lindbergh, but Lindbergh grew up in Michigan, living with, uh, in Detroit, living with his, his uh, grandmother. All three of those people came from Michigan. They were the leadership of America First, and America First was a battle between the Midwest, Main Street, where people manufacture things, and New York, which was Wall Street, where people lent you money. A certain group was very good at lending people money here. I'm not going to say who they were because I don't want to get in trouble with the Southern Poverty Law Center. This, this is the, the basis here of what was going on here. By now, it should be obvious that the role of the press in covering the Hootery story was not to uncover what was really going on, but to provide cover for the FBI by retailing the reports of the Southern Poverty Law Center. In spite of a few exceptions that get trotted out to justify more, more oppression, the robust attrition of free speech invoked by these journalists to justify the actions of the FBI turns out to be largely an illusion. It's all propaganda. Uh, according to uh, Merton and Lazarfeld, uh, after the Second World, the press functioned in three main ways. First, to decide which are the leg legitimate subjects of public discussion. Second, to enhance the authority of and bestow prestige on those persons, organizations, and social movements deemed desirable by its editors. And finally, to exist to reaffirm existing social norms and to expose deviance. That's exactly what's going on here. And they pick on people who are basically defenseless, like trailer trash from Southern Michigan. Everybody knows they're bad because they are white. And if you're white, everybody knows that you're a racist. So 
the, uh, as a result here, we have a situation where pretty much every week there is a mass shooting, okay? And the FBI is incapable of protecting us from mass shootings. Uh, and as a matter of fact, the whole idea of a mass shooting gets uh, run through the same propaganda mill that we've already talked about. So how many people remember Amy Bishop? No one. Absolutely no one. Okay. Uh, Guarino, in that same article, several high-profile murders have occurred recently, including those of Kansas abortion doctor George Tiller and a Holocaust museum guard in, in Washington. But he never gets around to explaining why these examples are cited more than high-profile other cases, like, say, the case of Amy Bishop. Now, unlike the hootery, uh, the, uh, professor, she's a professor, by the way. Okay, oh, wait, there's a problem. She's not from a trailer park. Professor Bishop actually killed a number of people, three of whom were people of color. Okay? Since Amy Bishop is white and her murder spree at the University of Georgia at Huntsville, she sounded like, took place at Huntsville, Alabama. It sounded like the ideal candidate for a hate crime prosecution, but it turned out that Amy Bishop was Jewish. Oh. And at that point, all talk of her crime as paradigmatic of anything other than mental illness suddenly disappeared. What, what, he really, what we're really talking about here is that the FBI and the SPLC in the main, in, and their lackeys in the mainstream press are themselves involved in a conspiracy to find scapegoats for current problems among marginalized individuals. In other words, we'll pick on people that are defenseless anyway. They have no way of defending themselves. And people, because people with political or financial clout somehow never get indicted by the FBI. Does anyone know who Sam Bankman-Fried is? Okay. We're talking about billions of dollars here. The theft of billions of dollars, and guess what happened? No indictments. Now, what, what does Sam Bankman-Fried have that's different than the guy's uh, hoodery in the, he's got Jewish privilege. And Jewish uh, privilege means you never get prosecuted for financial crimes. Or as a matter, in the case of Amy Bishop, you don't get prosecuted for mass murder either. Okay? Okay, so at the end here, we have March 29, 2012, two years later after the thing is announced, what became, this is the quote from the newspaper, what began, began as a major domestic terrorist trial involving nine members of the Michigan-based Huttery militia has ended with just two men pleading guilty to weapons charges. Sorry, didn't fly. Judge Roberts took, this is the judge in the case, took the unusual step of dismissing all major charges against the Huttery, saying government prosecutors had failed to prove they were doing anything more than talking about their hatred for authority, which is protected speech, if you're in a protected class. We have to add that. The Whitmer kidnapping case followed the same pattern, but there was one difference. In addition to supplying the, the conspirators with weapons, the FBI plied them with drugs to enhance their already crazy talk with the delusions of grandeur, which eventually led them to be charged with kidnapping. That's what changed in Michigan.
Okay, so not only is the FBI giving you bombs and real serious weapons, they're giving you dope. And dope leads you to be dopey. And it leads to all kinds of crazy talk. And that's why they were indicted. Now, I'd like to talk at this point about there is a long tradition of using dope as a form of control. Maybe you've heard of the opium wars in China. Okay, the English had a tremendous, a horrendous tea bill. I mean, T-E-A bill, okay? And they just loved tea, and they bought it from China, and all their money was going to China. What are we going to do about this balance of payment problem? I know. We'll get them all addicted to opium, which is what they did. They grew it in India. They sent it over there, and that was the beginning. Now, this is a, 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 an honored tradition uh, among the Anglo elites. The uh, Yankee traders uh, used to smuggle dope in, uh, and they all became the biggest families in, in New England. Uh, when they're Yankee Clippers, and the most famous scion of that tradition, I would say, was Aldous Huxley. You all know who Aldous Huxley is. He wrote a book called Brave New World. He was the grandson of T.H. Huxley, who became known as Darwin's Bulldog, because he was the representative of the elite that basically said, Darwin's our guy. This is a great idea. Survival of the fittest. We won out because we're better than those poor people's wages we were cheating them out of. Uh, began with Malthusianism, which is the English ideology, which means basically that uh, the, the population increase is always geometric and the food increase is always arithmetic, which means everybody's going to starve to death. I don't know whether you remember the 60s uh, when Paul Ehrlich wrote a book called The Population Bomb. came out in 1968 when, they, when the, the media, the panic was about overpopulation. That book said that India was going to starve to death by 1976. I don't know in case you know, didn't notice, I was in India 30 years after that. There are plenty of people there. They didn't starve to death. Okay. I know that comes as a shock to you, but hey, I'm here to shock you. I think that Huxley was the man. He came from the background of that people. We had an Anglophile elite in this country. He fit in like a hand into a glove, and he came over here, and he started pontificating about the one thing that he knew a lot about, which was social engineering. And not only social engineering of any sort, but the whole idea of using drugs as a significant factor in social engineering. Okay, he read 1984, that came out in 48. He was, wrote his uh, Brave New World 15 years before that. 1984 is a, in many ways a dated book. Uh, it came out um, because it was about the Soviet Union. And it wasn't about the really sophisticated people named, called the English who really knew how to do this kind of stuff. And he said, but he, he, what he understood there was that government through terror, namely the Soviet Union, works on the whole less well than government through the nonviolent manipulation of the environment and of the thoughts and feelings of individual men and women. The rise of communism in the third world will necessitate increased distribution of drugs. Uh, which he referred to as soma, comes from Hindu term, uh, 
which is Huxley's term for an as yet to be invented drug, which will render the masses docile to the commands of their invisible rulers. Permanent crisis, this is Huxley himself, permanent crisis justifies permanent control of everybody and everything by the agencies of central government. And permanent crisis is what we have to expect in a world which overpopulation is producing a state of things in which dictatorship under communist auspices becomes almost inevitable. The main problem facing the world is reproductive delinquency. If you went to the 930 mass today at St. Mary's, old St. Mary's, you saw lots of reproductive delinquency, okay? Huxley's solution to the problem of reproductive delinquency involves the selective breeding of, quote, biologically inferior ova. How does he know you have biologically inferior ova? I wonder. Fertilized by biologically inferior sperm, followed by the destruction of sexual morality and widespread dissemination of soma. Again, what is soma? In the 1950s, it was called Milltown. What we're seeing is basically for the last, for my entire life, let's put it this way, the social engineers have been coming up with, trying to come up with the ideal drug for social control. Okay, so in, in, in the 1950s, it was uh, barbiturates. Remember the Rolling Stones song called Mother's Little Helper? That's what they were talking about. That was the 50s attempt, and that didn't work out well. In the 1960s, they tried LSD, MK Ultra. This was the CIA trying to, and that was a very effective for one thing. It destroyed the anti-war movement. This was my generation coming into its own, like um, I was 20 years old in 1968, and uh, it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and the, what they created was a combination of that called the Grateful Dead, which was a band uh, that was, uh, you know, pretty mediocre. By the way, the Grateful Dead was at Woodstock, and you'll never see it in the film because they, they were terrible the way they played. But anyway, they used this guy, Owsley, who was part a chemist, and they used LS, Grateful Dead to distribute LSD at their concerts. Well, that was good for wrecking the anti-war movement because everybody got deranged. I mean, you're crazy. You go psychotic. It was... But it's not good for what he was really interested in, which is you want to control them. You want to make the people docile, but you also want them to work. We need to tweak this exactly right. Huxley was obsessed with Henry Ford. If you read um, Brave New World, he talks about Henry Ford. Henry Ford is Detroit. Henry Ford is America first. Henry Ford is the guy who raised wages. But he, Huxley, all Huxley saw was that uh, he, he felt that they had, they had turned, the, the uh, assembly line had turned workers into automata or robots. Uh, like, it, it, and, and what you want here is you want them docile but you want him to show up for work. And Ford had a, pro had a problem. First of all, the, the Irish, I mean, basically every, everybody, my whole genetic makeup has problems with drinking, whether you're Irish or German. And the trouble is you get drunk on Sunday, and you, sh you show up Monday with a hangover and you're a terrible worker. And that's not a good idea. And he recognized that. So he, his solution was to bring in Muslims. 
Dearborn is the biggest uh, Muslim colony in, in, the, in Michigan. And uh, he brought them together. Uh, okay? But the American version of Brave New World, which the social engineers imposed on the people of the United States during World War II, wasn't created by inflicting pain, but by inflicting a hardly less humiliating pleasure. That's in Huxley's words. What Huxley terms the era of social engineers began in earnest after World War II with the social engineering of the baby boomers' parents, like my parents, that was barbiturates. Okay? And then it moved on to one uh, tried, one attempt after another, which attempted to make servitude acceptable by regular doses of chemically induced happiness. That's his words. Soma is always a form of control. Happiness is much, chemically induced happiness is much better than the concentration camp or the gulag. It's much more effective, okay? This is the way he put it. In the brave new world, the Soma habit was not a private vice. It was a political institution. It was the very essence of the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness guaranteed by the Bill of Rights. But this most precious of the subjects and inalienable privileges was at the same time one of the most powerful instruments of rule in a dictator's armory. I remember writing uh, Libido Dominandi and saying sexual liberation is a form of control and everybody laughed at it. No, it's part of the plan here except we're talking about another phase, not this is not the sex phase, it's the drug phase. The systematic drugging of individuals for the benefit of the state, and incidentally, of course, for their own delight, was a main plank in the policy of the world controllers. The daily somaration was an insurance against personal maladjustment, social unrest, and the spread of subversive ideas. Religion Karl Marx declared, is the opium of the people. In the brave new world, this situation was reversed. Opium, or rather Soma, was the people's religion. Huxley foresaw a world in which drugs created a much more easily controllable society than you would if you were relying wholly on clubs and firing squads and concentration camps based on the use of a hypothetical drug called Soma, which was simultaneously a stimulant, a narcotic, and a hallucinogen, but which lacked the side effects of alcohol, opium, and cocaine, all of which rapidly produce addiction and in some cases lead to an extraordinary rate of physical degeneration and death. What was this recent approximation of Huxley's Soma was Prozac, the trade name of fluoxetine hydrochloride, first of the class of antidepressant medications called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs. Okay, it seemed that came onto the market in 1986. It seemed like the answer to Huxley's prayer of the closest approximation of this idea of Soma, but like LSD, Prozac and other SSRs were plagued with side effects like suicide and mass shootings. Every mass shooting can be traced to SSRIs. 
there's not, I don't think there's one mass shooting that you can look into where someone hasn't been prescribed this type of thing. And American, as America entered the fourth, the post-communist 1990s, the only drug left was marijuana. Disappointed by science, which gave them Ritalin, Oxycontin, and Prozac, the ever-docile lumpen proletariat in places like Elkhart, Indiana, settled on marijuana as its drug of choice. Tom Crossland, no one's ever heard of Tom Crossland, is the man who put Huxley's theory, theories into practice in Michigan when he created the Rainbow Farm as a place where the lumpen proletariat could smoke dope on the weekends. Tom Crossland was born November 10th, 1954 in Manchester, Tennessee, and 1954 is the year in which the Supreme Court handed down the Brown versus School Board decision, which would serve as the basis for social engineering of education based on race. And if the astrologers were interested in casting Crossland's horoscope, the CIA's inauguration of Operation Midnight Climax, which would conduct experiments on how to use sex and drugs as forms of control. They set up houses in San Francisco to do this also began in the year of Tom Crossland's birth. Tom Crossland's father moved from Tennessee to Elkhart after World War II to work in the nascent recreational vehicle industry. The main thing which separated Tom Crossland from his hell-raising hillbilly father was marijuana. And more importantly, the ideology which accompanied it and justified its use. Tom Crossland started smoking marijuana as a teenager in 1967 during the Summer of Love in San Francisco in the colony of Countercultural, which became Elkhart, Indiana. This is the way the man who wrote the story, uh, Pipers of Rainbow Farms, characterized it as, uh, he's talking about the hippie movement in 1960, which he characterizes as an underground party the height of political engagement and the struggle of the times, because when you got high, you belonged and you knew things about your town. You saw through the bullshit. You got the vision. The straight supported the logic and raw fear of the war in Vietnam and the murderous repression of radical ideas like civil rights. Everybody could see that was wrong and so on and so forth. This became, and it became explicitly at Rainbow Farm, became religion. Religion uh, and uh, drugs have a long history uh, together. Uh, and eventually, Rainbow Farm ended up on the Deadhead Circuit. And the Deadhead Circuit was created by the CIA to distribute LSD. And there's a group of people all across the country. And that's how he got the thing started. Same time he's doing that, the other end of the state there's a guy by the name of Tim Beck. Tim Beck is the man who gave us, gave Michigan legalized marijuana. Okay, he's smarter than Tom Crossan. He entered the University of uh, Detroit in 1970, and he learned two things there. He learned how to smoke dope, and he learned libertarian economics. And they go hand in hand hand in hand. Sorry for all you dopes. Oh, I mean libertarians out here. 
Eventually, these two forces would shape the rest of his life and lead to the role he played in bringing about the, the decriminalization of marijuana in 2018. Tim Beck put Brave New World into practice by getting Dana Nessel elected Michigan's attorney general. She is there because of drug money. How do I know this? Because Tim Beck told me that. I interviewed Tim Beck. Okay? He, he had aspirations to be a politician. He ran for um, some political office in uh, Grove Point, which is the most uh, richest neighborhood in Detroit. Lost that election, was involved in the libertarian wing of the Republican Party at precisely the time when the Reagan administration came into power. He was, as a libertarian, he was flamingly uh, pro-abortion, and that alienated him from the Republican Party in, in uh, Michigan. And at that point, he decided, I don't need the Republican Party. And he started uh, staging referenda. He got behind referenda. And when he got behind referenda, he noticed something. That what people say in public doesn't mean they're going to vote that way when the curtain goes behind them. And this was exactly the case in Detroit, where all of the black ministers would come out against marijuana, but the people were all smoking marijuana, all voted for it, and it passed. Okay? That was the doing of Tim Beck. By the time Tom Crossan arrived in Cass County, Michigan, Vandalia, Michigan. In 1993, everyone was too stoned to notice that Vandalia and Cassopolis had become poor because the attack on labor, which libertarianism had launched during the Reagan administration, had destroyed the high-paying factory jobs, which had once been the norm in the industrial Midwest. I am going to posit to you that was one of the reasons for uh, the legalization of marijuana. Wall Street has never forgiven Michigan for being the head of America first. Wall Street is anti-labor. Uh, Wall Street was determined to undo the gains that the working man got in places like Detroit when Henry Ford raised the wages. And then when Hank the Deuce, his grandson, cut a deal with the uh, UAW and they were the standard of high wages. That was an affront to the Wall Street crowd because at this time they are engaged in globalism. Globalism means exporting those jobs to China and driving the entire world wage level down to the same low level that exists in Asia. That's the whole point of this war on Michigan. Okay? In Elkhart, the shabby nobility of place that once had been wealthy had become hillbilly heaven. This is a place where partying, this is Kuiper's again, partying evidently seemed worth the cost in marriages and spiritual health. Children got lost. Exposure to the raw weathers of the heart makes for sloppy strategies. Every night was one of taking last minute refuge, tabs extended at the package store, keys borrowed, cigarettes and husbands going to the wrong house. The mornings involved massive reconstruction, a temporary febrile universe of restarted cars and loyalties and debts just reaching all the way back to the trailer factory. That's the new norm, and Elkhart is an example of it. 
The, 19, the year 1996 would prove to be a crucial turning point, both nationally and for Tom Cross and personally. Fueled with Soros money, the Open Society Foundation was able to overturn marijuana laws in California, something which attracted the attention of Tim Beck, who now thought that something similar was possible for Michigan. At the other end of the state, Rainbow Farm Summerfest of 96 quickly spired, spiraled out of control. Crossan's, Crossan's initial aversion to having guns at Rainbow Farm, remember he's a hippie? Hippie, peace, love, peace, peace. Quickly, Crossan's initial aversion to having guns at Rainbow Farm had given way to a policy of hiring group like Colonel Ken Carter and seven of his militiamen from Operation Rolling Thunder, which was the name he gave to the security detail, which was supposed to maintain order at Summerfest 96. Given the deadly combination of pot and guns, it was a miracle that no one got killed. Uh, don't take my word for it. This is uh, what happened there, referring to a group that showed up, and the group, you'll pardon my language here, was known as the pig fuckers. Okay? The pig fuckers just cranked up the slayer and deicide and the palm death. That's music. And had and anything else they had going, they had $100 cars and $1,000 stereos. As total drunkenness set in, they began driving around the field. They loaded up a keg and drove slowly among the tents, offering beer to anyone who could keep up. As soon as there were 20 to 30 people crammed into the car like a fraternity contest, another cloud of partiers chasing it, beer splashing, people falling down and other campers cursing them, running alongside, pounding on the car, trying to get them to stop. These attempts proved futile. futile. As the chasers fell off, some of them got in their own cars and began driving after the pig fuckers, honking their horns and playing their own stereos. Then they began bumping into one another, and soon they were smashing into each other on purpose. A smash-up derby, wild cackling and hurled curses, punching through the trebly, barely differentiated sheets of guitar distortion. Round and round, they circled the periphery of the 10-acre field, headlights bouncing wildly from tents to treetops. I just remember saying, somebody's going to be dead tomorrow. Their cars would come around crashing into each other, running over tents. I saw a tent just get flattened. I thought, God, is somebody sleeping in that tent right now? Somebody been run over and dead? And you know, the next morning we found people laying out in the road and we went and woke them up to make sure they were still alive. Fortunately, there were no fatalities, no serious injuries uh, that we were aware of. That was the Peace and Love Festival of 1996, okay? When you have something like this, don't be surprised that the law is going to get involved in your case, okay? But what happened here is that uh, basically Crossland put Brave New World into practice. This is, the, this is the real Brave New World. And it, what he did was he created a religion, I'm literally, there's a guy named Stephen Gaskin who showed up. He was from uh, San Francisco. He was one of the hippies from 1968. He wrote a book uh, based on uh, his experience with drugs. And the book was, quote, proof that 
a real world paradise could be spun from the raw esoterica of pot mysticism. He described dope smoking, smoking dope as a sacrament which would turn its devotees into gods. Now, according to Kuiper, this is the guy who wrote the story of Rainbow Farm, becoming God was what America is all about. And darn it, he's right. How do I know that? Well, because the Supreme Court agreed with him. I'm referring to the famous mystery clause of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, in which Justice Kennedy handed down a decision that said, quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life, close quote. That's the, that's the Supreme Court saying this. You know what that's called? That's called dope or libertarianism, depending on which, which way you want to look at it. That's both dope and libertarianism. Okay, so at night, by 1998, the party had gotten out of control. Okay, anyone familiar with Euripides' play, the Bacchae knows that the inevitable outcome of Dionysian frenzy, which is sex and intoxication, that's how you worship Dionysus, the outcome was death. Remember, I've talked about uh, the Bacchae many times. Uh, the end of it is, uh, you know the story. Uh, Dionysus, the Asiatic gods, has taken over Thebes. The women leave their looms and they go off and dance naked on the mountainside, worshiping Dionysus. Thebes, Pentheus is the king of Thebes. He realizes this is the end of the social order. The minute women leave their looms, it's the end of the social order. So he orders Dionysus to be arrested, brings him before him, and he's in the middle of talking, Dionysus says to the king, would you like to see the women dance naked on the mountainside? And he says, yeah, As a matter of fact, I would, because he has that experience, that concupiscence that we're all born into before there was any cure for it. So Dionysus takes him there and he's trying to get a look. He says, climb the tree. The women see him, they drag him down and they tear him limb from limb. And the last scene of the Bacchae is uh, Agave, his mother, with his head in her lap. And the father comes in and she says, he says to Agave, what do you see? And she says, it's a trophy. It's a lion's head. And then he says, look closer. And at this point, the intoxication wears off and she realizes it's her son's decapitated head in her lap. And she says, I see horror, I see suffering, and I see grief. And that's where Rainbow Farm was headed. Okay. By 1988, the local prosecutor concluded that Rainbow Farm had become a problem too big to ignore. This was a guy who was kind of a Reagan Republican. And so he decided he's going to take steps against Crossland. Now, he should have uh, indicted him for something or other, but there's an easy way out here for prosecutors, and it's called uh, confiscation. I don't know whether you know this, but that's the Reagan administration instituted this. Any, instead of just prosecuting, you could simply, if they're guilty of doing drugs, you can confiscate their property. That's exactly what uh, Prosecutor Teeter decided to do with Crossland. So Crossland is now faced with something that he can't 
figure out. This, by the 1990s, uh, confiscation, drug forfeiture, I think that's what it's called, was a billion-dollar annual racket na nationwide. Faced with a threat he could not challenge, Tom Crossland reverted to the default setting of Libertarian Michigan. He lit up another joint, popped a few Prozacs for good measure, and then dressed up in his camo outfit. And the, at this point, Crossland, the hippie pacifist, started patrolling his property with a new Ruger assault rifle in the certainty that the Second Amendment guaranteed him the right to do so. Now, this is a man who's walking on his own property with a rough rifle that is guaranteed by the Second Amendment. What he didn't understand is you picking up a gun guarantees the right of the FBI to kill you. I had experience, uh, I was involved in Irish music in South Bend, Indiana. The guy leading it was a hippie, classic hippie from the 1960s. He told me the story. You could tell he's on Notre Dame camps. You could tell he was a hippie because he had long hair and everybody else had crew cuts. And a guy comes up to him and says, are you a revolutionary kid? And he said, yes. And he said, come here, kid. I got something to show you. Walks over, pops over the trunk, open the trunk of his car, and it's full of guns. And he said, pick up a gun, kid. What he didn't say is, pick up a gun so I can kill you. And that's what Tom Carlson didn't know. Okay? He had put himself into a, situ a very dangerous situation uh, because he was dopey. The marijuana combined with the Prozac, combined with his homosexual activity, had rendered, had darkened his mind. Okay? Marijuana causes paranoia. There's a study here you can read about. Uh, everybody knows that. And this is precisely what happened to Tom Crossland. So convinced that the prosecutor is going to take his farm, Tom took the matter in his own hands, picked up his Ruger assault rifle, and he started setting fire to buildings on the property because he didn't want them to take it over, okay? The smoke was seen in South Bend, Indiana, okay, which is not far from there. I remember this because I remember this thing happening. And as a result of that WNDU, the Notre Dame uh, NBC affiliate dispatched their helicopter to take a picture of Rainbow Farm from the air. At this point, Croisland's Paranoia is going crazy. Now they got helicopters after me. So he picks up his gun and he fires 15 rounds into the helicopter. At that point, he committed a federal crime. At that point, the FBI got him. Now the prosecutor was basically putting a siege on Rainbow Farm. We're going to wait this out. We don't want to hurt anybody. That's not the way the FBI operates. FBI shows up, they put on their own camouflage uniforms, they crawl onto the property, and at that point, uh, we only have one source of information, and it's the FBI. Agent Peterson said that Crossland, as soon as they saw him, almost instantaneously began to raise the Ruger Mini-14 and lean forward in a shooting position with his index finger on the trigger guard. At that point, 
Agent Peterson fired the shot that splattered Crossland's brains over the guy who was standing next to him, who then uh, ran away uh, in state of terror. If Tom did raise his gun, Kuipers, the guy wrote the book, Brandon never saw it. That's the guy who ran away. Uh, and we'll never know because dead men tell no tales and the FBI is going to write this story. Now, when California legalized marijuana in 1996, Tim Beck took notice. Three years later, Beck came from the opposite of Michigan, made a name for himself in the referendum. Subsequent uh, to 2004, 2008, and full decriminalization in uh, 2018. Flushed from their victory in California, the oligarchs turned their attention to Michigan. Two of them happened to be Jewish. George Soros, who would go on to become famous as a supporter of subversive activities and prosecutors who would not enforce the law, as well as Peter B. Lewis, who as head of progressive insurance was a part of the same field as Beck. Beck remembers meeting Lewis at a political event accompanied by two gorgeous women, which he felt was in keeping with his reputation as a notorious womanizer. When Lewis congratulated Beck on his by then successful decriminalization plan, Beck got the one thing he wanted most for his efforts, namely recognition. The man who grew up eating muskrat was now recognized by the oligarchs as a mover and shaker. More importantly, he was the man who could take oligarch money and turn it into political results completely on his own without the assistance of either political party, both of which were beholden to voters and so constrained as to what they could say. By, 2000, by 2018, the politicians were seeking out Beck's patronage as avidly, avidly as the oligarchs. In the same year, Beck was asked to attend a fundraiser for Dana Nessel, the Jewish lesbian who wanted to become Michigan's next attorney general. Once she was elected with Soros money, Nessel halted all drug busts in the state and poured over the SPLC's hate crimes map, looking for political motivated cases which would enhance her standing with her backers. Next, Nessel told Beck she was considering prosecuting Michael Voris. Remember Michael Voris, head of church militant for hate crimes, but decided to go after the Catholic Church for child abuse instead. More recently, Nessel has come out in favor of having drag queens at every school in Michigan. A drag queen for every school. That would be fun for the kids and lift them up when they are having emotional issues. Nessel, who is evidently no stranger to emotional issues, said, drag queens, not only are they hurting our not hurting our kids, drag queens make everything better. Drag queens are fun. Kevin Daly claims that Attorney General Nessel was best known for passing out drunk in the stands after two Bloody Marys at the 2021 Michigan State football game, but this is not true. Nessel is even more famous for concocting the great Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping plot in collaboration with the FBI. On October 8, 2020, Dana Nessel called a press conference to announce that the FBI had arrested six Michigan men for conspiring to kidnap and possibly killed Gretchen Whitmer before Election Day. Nessel blamed Donald Trump 
who allegedly fueled the rage of alleged white supremacists and right-wing militias responsible for the dastardly abduction plot. In a televised speech, which echoed Nestle's allegations, Whitmer claimed that when our leaders meet with, encourage, or fraternize with domestic terrorists, they legitimize their actions and are complicit. Does that ring a bell? That's exactly the allegation they brought against Donald Trump in the, in the January 6th story. It turns out that there was a connection between the now discredited Whitmer kidnapping case and the January 6th insurrection after all. In April 2020, FBI agents attended a lockdown rally protesting Whitmer's COVID regulations, which was held in the state capitol in Lansing. In what would, could, would act as a dress rehearsal for January 6th, the FBI infiltrated alleged militia groups at the state capitol and then steered them to the kidnapping plot. Stephen Dantuono, who was director of the FBI's field office in Detroit, got rewarded for orchestrating the Whitmer kidnapping plot by being transferred to Washington, where he orchestrated January 6th insurrection along exactly the same lines. On April 30th, 2022, which is like uh, six months before the, uh, seven months before the January 6th, an FBI, FBI agent known as Thor arrived in Lansing to recruit members of the Wolverine Wolverine Watchmen, who would later be charged in the kidnapping plot. With Thor calling the shots with his FBI handlers, the Michigan police guarding the Capitol during the COVID lockdown protest suddenly stood down and let the protesters, quote, including those in full tactical gear, in other words, with weapons, which included weapons, into the State House. And according to an account in BuzzFeed, the Watchmen rushed into the building's second floor uh, when one uh, defendant spotted state troopers who got into their faces screaming, taking pictures of their badges with his phone, daring them to touch him. Probably an FBI agent. The FBI watchmen, meanwhile, had worked their way around to an office where they thought Whitmer was and began, began banging hard on the door. Photojournalists began snapping pictures. The shocking spectacle of the militants occupying the Capitol grabbed the media's attention. Eight months later, the same head of the FBI who was responsible for the insurrection in Lansing orchestrated the January 6th takeover of the nation's capital. Jason Blanchard, the attorney for Barry Croft, who was the chief conspirator in that Whitmer kidnapping plot, uh, argued in March 22, as one more FBI bus got dismissed as entrapment, quote, that marijuana fueled much of the talk and that an FBI informant supplied the pot. The alleged plot to kidnap and murder Gretchen Whitmer turned out to be, quote, stoned crazy talk and not a plan. That's according to the defense lawyer. The legalization of marijuana, in other words, provided one more weapon, which the FBI, in collaboration with oligarch-appointed stooges like Dana Nessel, could wield against the people of Michigan. Instead of rendering them docile and happy, marijuana had rendered Croft and the other conspirators delusional as they spouted libertarian nonsense into the tape recorders of FBI agents who were collaborating with the politicians who in theory were their representatives. It turns out that John Adam was right when he said, we have no constitution 
which functions in the absence of a moral people. Michigan would pay a steep price for being the home of America first. I went to the celebration, if you could call it that, of uh, Crossland's death that took place in the same place. Rainbow Choir has been cut up now. It's not one property anymore. I went there and for the first time, I experienced the new marijuana. I remember the old marijuana of the 1960s, okay? The new marijuana, I didn't know what, I, I thought, I said to the two guys, why don't we, is there a skunk near here? It smells like skunk. It's not leaves, it's buds. And you walk around the place and basically everybody's selling buds. This is a new economy for, for uh, Michigan, selling buds. Uh, and I, I said, you got to talk to uh, Rainbow Charlie. Rainbow Charlie. Okay, so I finally locate Rainbow Charlie. And I said, we're talking. He was there. He knows the thing. And I said, did it ever? He said, we have to keep the movement going. What movement are you talking about? Leading these people into chemical bondage according to the directions of Aldous Huxley and those people? Complete, no idea of what he was talking about. On our way home from the Hempfest, I'm stoned at this point simply by breathing the air around there. So I'm worrying I'm going to hallucinate on my way back to South Bend, Indiana. But anyway, uh, Mike Bajakis, the media guy, we're going down Route 40, M40, and he points to a strip mall. The strip mall is empty. The parking lot is empty, but there are two exceptions. Dollar General and the pot shop. Nothing symbolizes the wreck of Michigan culture better than that strip mall. Thank you.